Before we get started, it is children's church today. So if you are a child age four to grade five, you're now welcome to go to the fellowship hall for children's church. Well, good morning. It's all very heavy, isn't it? If you're visiting, or if you weren't here last week, we're in the middle of a three-week series looking at climate change. Over this time, we're learning more about the climate challenge, exploring why it's an issue that's relevant for the church, and discussing ideas for ways we might take action. Last week, Todd explained the basic science of climate change. In a brief flash of time since the Industrial Revolution, we have burned fossil fuels, millions of years of the sun's captured energy, altering the composition of our atmosphere, causing it to reflect more of the sun's energy back to Earth, like a greenhouse on a warm day. Todd also talked about creation as a doorway to God's love, and you're all bringing images of creation that you connect with most deeply and putting them here on these pillars. Pictures of that beautiful mountain lake, a favorite animal, or your children and grandchildren. In the Sunday School elective that's running parallel to this series, we have the opportunity to dive a bit deeper into some of these themes. We've spent time talking about how we're all processing the daily news, what we're learning about climate. I'm struck by the way our society's response to climate mirrors the five not always linear stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Denial is still quite common, which I think can be explained. We've never wrestled with challenges before on a truly global scale with all of humanity facing a problem together. It's easy to insist that it's not as bad as scientists are making it out to be. An interesting book here is Collapse by Jared Diamond. I read it as part of a Soils and Civilizations class in college where we studied how civilizations rise and fall through history. There are three clear themes that stand out in the text. First, very sophisticated civilizations are not immune to collapse. Second, in many cases, the rapid decline of a civilization can be directly tied to their exploitation, dependence, and finally depletion of natural resources. And third, it's often hard to recognize that a tipping point has been passed before it's too late. I used to wonder why, what the person was thinking when they cut down the last tree on Easter Island but it's an inaccurate question. In reality, the crisis, uh, crisis occurred long before. In contrast to these stories of past civilizations, we have a unique opportunity to better analyze what's happening right now. We can study and date ice cores, look at satellite data and visualize trends. This August, mourners gathered for a unique funeral in Iceland. But it wasn't for a person. It was for a glacier. Here we go. Anybody know Icelandic pronunciation? (laughs) 
Akjakul was the name of the glacier. They left a plaque that embodies what the end of denial looks like. It reads, This is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. The second stage of grief is anger. We currently see this right now in the global climate conversations. Many people are incensed at the suggestion that they would need to change their lifestyle because of climate. Penn State, where I went to college, has some of the world's leading climate scientists who tell stories about the daily hate mail they receive. Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish climate activist that Todd introduced us to last week, has also been the target of personal attacks to smear her reputation and discredit her work. The climate strike participants have also expressed anger at the systems and elders who hold power within those systems, who have known about and helped to perpetuate this problem and yet continue to live life as usual. In response to climate, the bargaining grief stage is often expressed as an attempt to say, maybe things won't be so bad. For example, in this region, a warmer climate may mean a longer growing season. And I bet if this were March, an offer of less snow might seem somewhat welcome. Bargaining is a sense that we can ride this out. Another expression might be a feeling that we've all experienced, that we can continue to live our lives as we always have, including flights around the world and globally shipped off-season produce as long as we buy the appropriate carbon offsets. As the science becomes increasingly clear, many of us are in the depression stage. The problem is large beyond our imagination, and it feels hopeless. Nearly every day we hear more bad climate news, and it's overwhelming. This is why we began this series with a time of lament, to hold this collective loss together. Finally, acceptance is acknowledging what is happening and finding ways to move forward. Now, when we're talking about a death, this stage also requires us to recognize that this loss has happened, and I can't change it. For the moment, with climate, the story is a bit different. Scientists believe that the critical tipping point for our planet is a temperature rise of 1.5 degrees Celsius, an increase they expect the Earth to hit in 2030. We have 10 years. There's still hope. Standing in contrast to the magnitude of the challenge in front of us is the knowledge that we have all that we need to address the climate crisis. In 2017, an important work called Drawdown was published, written by a consortium of global climate researchers. It described as the, it's described as the most comprehensive plan ever developed for reversing global warming and it profiles 100 solutions, listing the magnitude at which each solution must be deployed to begin drawing down atmospheric carbon and reversing the effects of climate change. One simple fact is very clear. We have the knowledge. The technologies are ready when technologies are solutions. And the work even makes good financial sense. 
Drawdown's cost estimates show that fully implementing all 100 solutions would return 2.5 times the initial cost by 2050. Our challenge is, can we move in our grief to, uh, to active acceptance fast enough? The solutions are here to build a different world, but it's also one that's better. As followers of Christ, we're walking in the footsteps of the one who shared a radical vision for how to live. Many New Testament stories tell how Jesus intervened in very practical ways in people's lives. And this makes sense. At the very beginning of his ministry on earth, Jesus stood in the temple and declared in Luke 4, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of slight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is showing us a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. The title of this message comes from our Isaiah 43 text. I like the immediacy of the NIV translation. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I believe God is moving, creating a way in the wilderness that is our present climate crisis. I see this most clearly through a global movement toward regeneration. Where sustainability has often been a quest to lessen impact, Regeneration is the idea that all of our interactions could restore the systems we contact. Instead of doing less harm, regeneration is focused on bringing new life. In college, I had a professor who always took issue with the term sustainability. He didn't think it was a bold enough goal. To drive the point home, he asked us, imagine what you'd think if you asked a couple how their marriage was going, and they said, It's sustainable. (laughs) You'd be less than thrilled for them, right? I'm not trying to start a battle of semantics here between sustainability and regeneration. But I believe there are important ways that the concept of regeneration pushes us to be more creative. Here are a few examples of regeneration in action. In agriculture, where I first encountered the narrative of regeneration. Farmers are adopting techniques that heal the ecosystems surrounding their farm. In contrast to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, their cropping practices build soil, reversing trends of soil loss. Farmers are avoiding chemicals to bring soil back to life and skipping tillage to grow extensive beneficial microbiological and fungal communities underground. Who talks about fungal communities underground with a smile on a Sunday morning. (laughs) They're building soil health, increasing water infiltration, retention, and resilience of their farm. They're working to bring life back to streams flowing through their farm. All the while, these practices are pulling carbon out of the air through photosynthesis. If adopted widely, agriculture could go from being a significant contributor of greenhouse gases to a valuable carbon sink. In architecture, designers are creating buildings that go far beyond any of the previous green building standards. 
according to the whole building design guide at the National Institute of Building Sciences, regenerative and restorative buildings not only produce all of their own energy, capture and treat all water, but are designed and operated to have a net positive impact on the environment. They repair surrounding ecosystems. They produce more energy than the building consumes, sharing the excess. They create, create opportunities for urban agriculture, recharge groundwater systems, and create ecosystems for local species whose habitats have been destroyed. People are choosing to build new buildings on polluted land by marginalized communities to restore vibrant life to these spaces. In finance, people are creating new models to run businesses and create investments that regenerate communities. The organization called Regenerative Finance is shifting the economy by transferring control of capital to communities most affected by racial, economic, and environmental injustices. They list several of the values of this movement as work that builds community wealth, shifts economic capital, economic control, democratizes the workplace, drives social equality, retains culture and tradition. One project that caught my attention several years ago was called Rolling Jubilee. It was an effort to use donations to buy medical debt at pennies on the dollar, canceling it, and sending the debtors a wrapped box with a simple note inside that said that their debt was forgiven. Isn't this fantastic? Don't these feel like glimpses of the kingdom of heaven? I wanted to share these examples of regeneration across several fields because I think they help us see, first, how universal this work is. It's something that all of us in whatever part of the community, I guarantee it, I haven't thought of a role yet that isn't, wherever we are can be a part of. And they help to awaken the creativity that's inside us to imagine a different future. I also wanted to acknowledge that regeneration isn't always a new concept. Many of these ideas have been practiced by indigenous cultures around the world for thousands of years. And they're coming from many different places around the world. Paul Hawken, in his book, Blessed Unrest, comments that the largest movement in history is happening right now as all of these distributed threads come together to weave the same garment. Despite the enormity of the climate challenge facing our world, I still believe that we're living in the most exciting time in history. Just think about the opportunities that lie in front of us over the next 10 years to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world. I fundamentally believe that the church has a vital role to play in this work. At its best, the church can speak with a prophetic voice, draw attention to the plight of the marginalized, and build deep community across barriers that often divide. I also had the opportunity to be at the National Cathedral a few years ago for their Earth Day service. Their speaker, Dr. Matthew Sleeth, reflected how no one who was present when the first stone of the cathedral was placed was alive when the building was completed. The church is also an institution that's accustomed to work on big projects. And there's never been one larger. As we close, I'd like you to recall a part of Todd's message last week. He shared how the Pentagon classifies climate change as a threat multiplier. 
This means that the, the, the U.S. military sees climate change as a challenge that makes all other challenges worse. Fortunately, like all good equations, it also works in reverse. What if we imagined our work to reverse climate change as a regeneration multiplier? I encourage you this week to think about how climate work could be a regeneration multiplier of the work we're already doing as a church. How might this regenerative worldview impact the lives of the people connected to Chestnut Housing or coming to the Monday night meal? I hope these stories spark ideas. Like Todd said, these times demand much more than a deeper commitment to recycling. We'll be using the final two meetings of the Climate Sunday School elective toward the end of November to discuss how the church might respond to climate collectively. And I invite you all to join that time too. I believe Christ is working in our world today. And I think if he stood in front of this congregation this morning, his message might sound something like this. I have come to bring healing to a world scarred by your never-ending drive to consume more to give breath to asthmatic children living in the shadow of your power plants and to comfort refugees fleeing rising seas. See, I'm doing a new thing. Can you perceive it? We've heard a lot over these climate messages. And we've held that with times of silence and confession. So I'd invite you to take a moment or two and think about these things.